0: Alright, well it's been a while since we've been back in our normal study and just since you've probably slept since then and we've been through a holiday and we've been through a whole number of different things. We're going to do a little bit of review and just reminder of what we're attempting to do in this whole big long study. We All the way back at the very beginning on Wednesday night we have kind of undertaken to really just understand God as he's revealed himself to us and so All the way back in the beginning, that started with understanding what do we believe about God and what do we believe about, you know, all of these things. Well, that eventually, that road eventually led us to God has revealed Himself to us in His Word and in the story of Scripture as it's revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we undertook basically to go through the Old Testament just so that we could get an idea of the story of Scripture, but not just what's in the Bible, also the cultural backgrounds and all of those kinds of things. And the, the hope, really, honestly, is to, to give us a bit of depth when we read the Scriptures. The, these Scriptures didn't just, like, drop out of the sky. These are events that actually took place in human history. They took place with a people that were really on the earth, that really walked around. They had culture around them, they had cities that they lived in, they had all of these things, they had foreign nations that they interacted with, and so part of our reading of the Old Testament is not just trying to get a cursory understanding of the top layer of the words on the page, certainly is that, but also to explore the stuff, the underpinnings, all the stuff around it, the culture around it, the other nations that are involved, what's going on in human history at this time, to help us better get a grasp of what's on the page and how we can not only trust the veracity of the report that's given to us in Scripture, but we can also, uh, when we read the Bible, have some wherewithal to understand it. You, you kind of grasp what culture looked like at that time and where they're at geographically and things like that that sort of help us get a lay of the land. The whole goal of anything that we do, whether it's Sunday morning preaching Uh, Wednesday night Bible study, what we're about to start picking up in January and things like that, is is really all that we just become better Bible readers, that we be able to open the Bible ourselves and and understand what's there. And so uh, we've gone through Jewish history from from really Adam and Eve, Abraham, all the way up through Moses and the Exodus coming out of Egypt and across the, the Red Sea, Uh, into the promised land with Joshua. We looked at the conquest. We looked at all those things. We set up the kingdom. We looked at the rise and fall of the kingdom with Saul and David and Rehoboam and all of these. We looked at the division of the kingdom, north and south, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we just got past the part where the the northern kingdom, the kingdom of, of, we'll call it the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the north got hauled off into captivity by the nation of? was it? Uh, Assyria. Right, right. So they got hauled off by the nation of Assyria, and they're off in captivity uh, as, we, as we, we speak tonight. All right, so they're off somewhere in captivity. Now we are turning our attention to the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom consists of really two tribes. Do you remember who they are? This pop quiz. You didn't even know you were getting a pop quiz tonight, but two kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin, and they're kind of all going to normally they will just be called the Southern Kingdom. They'll normally be called maybe Ju- Judah. Uh, they'll kind of be lumped into one term. Usually it's Judah, uh, or sometimes they'll be called by the capital city, which is Jerusalem. All right. Sometimes the Northern Kingdom is referred to by its capital city, which was Samaria. All right. Somebody's getting some gold stars tonight. All right. <laughs> So no, with it, um, and so we have looked at several of the southern kings as we've turned our attention to the southern kingdoms and how they were impacted by all of this. I'm gonna my, my watch keeps going off, and I'm sorry, I gotta turn that off. Um, so just as a reminder, we got a couple of things going on here. Um, remember that Ahaz was a king in the south. Isaiah was appointed to go, uh, basically tell him. Uh, what he needed to do. He was considering what he should do because he's got Assyria out here in the east that is breathing down his neck. Assyria, you have to remember at this time, is the dominant kingdom out there. And everyone is terrified of Assyria. They can come in and lay waste to anybody. And so Ahaz is no different. He's fearing what's happening with Assyria. Well, at the time, all the nations around Assyria Jerusalem around the Jews or around Judea is they're in turmoil too at Assyria knowing Assyria can come in and conquer them and so naturally what do they do well if their enemy is Assyria then the enemy of my enemy is my friend so they all band together and they decide look we're gonna kind of form an alliance and we're gonna uh, we're gonna stand tall against Assyria that's our only hope of survival And so Ahaz, who is a king of the south, is considering this alliance and he's been told by the king of the north and by the king of Damascus, which is up north of the northern kingdom, he's been told by all of them, look, if you don't join our alliance, we're going to replace you on the throne, we're going to put a puppet on the throne instead and he'll do whatever we want him to do. And then he'll be a part of our alliance and then we can stand tall against Syria. Now, you you got that's a compelling offer, right? <laughs> is if I don't participate, then they're going to replace me. What what is the problem with that? You think about it for just a second. Southern king who is of the line of David. So the southern king is of the line of David. He's on the throne. God has told David, "Hey, your line will always be on the throne." The northern king and the king of Damascus tell him, we're going to replace you. What's the big problem with that? Well, then they would have to, God's word would have to be false. Yeah. So Isaiah is appointed to go tell Ahaz, don't take the deal. Ask God for a sign. Be it as high as heaven or whatever, ask him for a sign, and he'll prove to you that he's going to maintain you on the throne, that they're not going to be able to do what it is that they say they're going to do. In fact, he's going to kill them. And Ahaz, you remember what his response to David is? I mean, to to Isaiah is? Uh, Far be it from me to test God. Right? Far be it from me to test God. I would never do that. Well, that's a problem. You're not supposed to test God, that's true, unless God tells you to test him. In which case, you not testing God is now disobedience. Okay? So, on the whole, Ahaz is right, normally. But we're in abnormal circumstances where God has actually told him to go ahead and test him. So, Isaiah says, guess what? God's going to give you a sign anyway. virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, You will call his name Emmanuel. Right? So, we went through this uh, leading into the the gospel, or the, the gospel, the book of Matthew, I mean... The book of Isaiah is what I was trying to say, but I've got Matthew open in front of me, so that's why. Um, so anyway, through the book of Isaiah, then we went through the book of Isaiah and we saw how the book of Isaiah is kind of put together and all that it's laying out, which really took us from Ahaz paying this really big price for his survival, having to think through, okay, wait, do I obey God? Uh, do I listen to him or, or what? And so he ends up, Ahaz ends up taking Temple treasury money and giving it over to pay off the Assyrians, which is extreme disobedience. And we see this repeated time and time again, where the northern, the southern kings are doing this. Not only that, but it skipped twice on me, didn't it? Um, Hosea, who came after him, his options are extremely limited because in the year of his, the year he took over as king in 732. Damascus was reduced to ashes, and it was clear that Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria, is coming next for Assyria, for Samaria, and so he begins paying a tribute to, to Assyria. Remember, he's the king of the north, and he realizes, okay, wait a second, Damascus, who is their northern, uh, their, their northern compatriot, is, 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 has fallen, and so he's next. And so Assyria is going to march in. So he starts paying off Assyria. Well, it doesn't work. Assyria comes in and hauls off all the inhabitants of the northern kingdom into Samaria in 722. So if we're thinking through this, just historically speaking, remembering these important dates, 722 is a huge date in Jewish history. It is the date that the northern kingdom, ten tribes of Israel, were hauled off into captivity by Assyria. All right? So all we're left with now in the land is Judah, who's in the south. Judah and Benjamin, who's a part of them. But, but Judah, practically speaking, in the south. That's, that's all we're left with. And so the, their, their northern brothers have all been held, hauled off into slavery, and, uh, and so Judah is naturally to assume uh, we're next. But at the same time, there's this hubris with the southern kingdom because, hey, we're God's people. The northern kingdom, they were an illegitimate kingdom. They didn't have David's line on the throne. We are children of Abraham. We have David's son on our throne. So there's, it's a kind of a mixed bag, right? There's a fear of Assyria, and then there's also a kind of hubris that it could never happen to us. Alright, and so we get to King Hezekiah, who is on the throne, and you'll remember in Isaiah, Hezekiah is on the throne, and, and he gets a little bit proud. In fact, he gets so proud um, that he decides to show off all the money that he's got to Babylon. Now, when it comes to assessing Hezekiah, the Bible always gets to these little statements where it tells how, how we're to think of Hezekiah or how to think of any king? Well, he was wicked, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and, and in the sight of the people, and he led the people into corruption, and he didn't destroy the high places. Normally, it's those two things. How did he lead? Was he wicked, or was he, was? he did he follow the Lord? That's one. And then, did he tear down the high places? What are the high places? Remember? What is it? You're right. Go ahead. Yeah, it's the place where you go worship other gods. They built them on top of Large hills, and so they became known as high places. And so these high places that are up in the land, they're erected to worship other gods. And the king is evaluated on whether or not he personally followed the Lord and did he tear down the high places. All right. But it's not always so cut and dry. Sometimes you get eh, a mixed bag with the king, it's not always black and white. And with Hezekiah, it's certainly on the whole favorable, but it's also it's there's got some dark spots. Go ahead, Charlie. Um, well, this is part of what we're going to get into with Hezekiah, actually. Um, are they all? He asked if they're always pagan. If the high places are always pagan. Um, I think the simplest answer to your question is yes, but. Sometimes they use the high places to worship God. And what we're going to see in our text tonight is that's not that's like getting half credit for the answer, right? Uh, it's not, not as right as it should be, all right? It's not as wrong as it could be, but it's not as right as it should be, all right? Let's, let's say it that way. Um, so when it comes to the reign of Hezekiah, on the whole, Hezekiah is seen as a pretty good guy. On the whole, he's at least sensitive to the Lord's direction. And on the whole, his leadership is considered favorable. But it's not without its complications. Um, He dies in 686, and Isaiah dies not long after him. And what we see is that after the death of Hezekiah, and particularly after the death of Isaiah, Judah begins to go on this steep decline. Now, here's just to give an overview of what's going to happen to Judah. Remember, the northern kingdom is hauled off in 722. Well, 150 years or so later, in in, in 586 B.C., Judah is going to be hauled off into captivity, this time by Babylon. Now, you know Babylon is coming. But the people in the Old Testament don't know yet that Babylon is coming. Right? They're going to be told Babylon is coming, but they don't know yet that Babylon is coming. And you, the reader, you kind of know this is going to happen in 586. Well, here we are at the, really the beginning of the 600s. Hezekiah is about to die. In 686 he dies. Isaiah dies. And what we see is this uh, kind of sensitivity toward Babylon, this inclination towards Babylon, because remember, everybody hates Assyria. Assyria is the big dog on the block, and they can come in and lay waste to anybody they want at any time they want. And so, in order to stave off the threat of Assyria, people start appealing to Babylon. Well, you know, as a reader of the story, and as you have knowledge of the Old Testament, you know what's coming. Babylon is not good, they can't be trusted. But they continue to lean on this stick of Babylon. Now, That's a big problem in the Old Testament. Why is that a problem? Why is it a problem, these entangling alliances with other nations? Why is that a big deal? Yes, because you're the people of God and you're supposed to lean on the Lord for His protection, not other nations. So that's the problem with entangling alliances. They're not trading cotton, all right? They're getting protection, military protection. That's mainly what's at stake. And you're not depending on the Lord. And so this is a huge problem. But yet they continue to lean on, uh, on Babylon. And so once Hezekiah dies, obviously the national life of Israel is going to go downhill. So in the east, Assyria is continuing to reign supreme. And here's what Babylon wants. Babylon is paying tribute to Assyria. And that's a big problem for Babylon. Babylon doesn't want to pay tribute to Assyria. They want out from under Assyria's thumb. Israel, or in this case, the Jews, Hezekiah, namely, likes the idea of alliances with anyone not named Assyria because that gives them an added layer of protection. Right? So here's a nation in Babylon who wants out from under control of Assyria. And here's a nation in Judah who wants protection from Assyria who better to give them protection than someone who's located smack dab in the middle of Assyria that's where babylon is so if you take the mesopotamian region you have the it judah over here you go all the way up the fertile crescent all the way over here to the east and you get assyria and judah i mean assyria and babylon right there next to each other so who better to keep assyria from breathing down their necks then Babylon, who's right there in the midst of them, right? So, what happens? Well, Hezekiah gets sick. We talked about this in Isaiah. Remember right there in Isaiah 38, I think it is. Or 30, 36, that's what it is. 36 and 37, Hezekiah gets sick. He falls ill and he's told, get your belongings together. I'm going to kill you. That's what he's told. So, he gets sick, I and mean, in the midst of his sickness, here comes Babylon. Now, why is Babylon coming into Judah to talk to the sick and dying king? Give him gifts, wish him well. What do they want? They want his money. So they say, uh, the Lord, he, Hezekiah, you know, repents, and, and the Lord makes him well, and, and this, here comes this you know, team of Babylonians coming in. We heard you were sick. We came to to give you uh, gifts and to to talk to you and just really just just wish you well. We just wish you well. That's all we want. By the way, we got this kingdom of Syria over here, which is really breathing down. We really want out from under them. You think you might be able to help us? Think you might be able to protect us? Do you have any money that we could potentially have that might help us in this effort? We could join forces and really get out from under the thumb of Assyria. Do I have money? He says. Do I have money? Yes, of course I have money. And so Babylon comes over here in an attempt to get independence from Assyria, asking Hezekiah, does he have money? And as a result, Hezekiah does what? Well, he takes him into the temple and he says, do we have money? Let me show you what kind of money we have. And he shows them all the money that the Jews have. And all the money is collected in the temple. And this is a huge, huge problem why is this a huge problem? There's two reasons. One, again, you want to lean on Babylon for support instead of God. Two, whose money is that? That's a huge problem. That's not your money. All right. So, it's a huge problem. But, Hezekiah opening up the temple treasury, the the treasury to to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians um, showed that he favored what was proposed by the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans and the Babylonians are the same same group. Uh, Babylon and Chaldea are just two different cities in their kingdom. Um, so it showed that he was he was willing to accept it. Let's look at Second um, Kings twenty twelve to fifteen here in your verse packet. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, "What did these men say, and from where did they come to come to you?" And Hezekiah said, "They've come from a far country. Uh, I think it was Babylon, maybe." And he said, "What have they seen in your house?" And Hezekiah answered, "They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my in my storehouses that I did not show them." So. This similar, uh, another account, basically, is in, uh, is in Isaiah, Isaiah 39, 1-4. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick, and he recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly and showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouse. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And so uh, uh, he asked, the prophet asks the same thing. He tells them essentially the same thing. I showed them every single thing that was that was in the storehouses. So this is a, a huge problem. And not only that, but when you read the accounts in First and Second Kings, and then you go over to, uh, to, to Isaiah, and you read some of the parallel accounts there, you get one part of the story, and then you can get sort of God's perspective on the story a lot of times when you go into the Chronicles and you see it there. Uh, how, how does God actually see this? And we're going to find out that that's problematic because we see there that it was, this was an act of pride. Come on, go. This was an act of pride that brought about God's anger with Ahaz. For what he did. Look at Second Chronicles 32, 25, and then verse 31. But Hezekiah did not make a return to the benefit done to him, that is, for God healing him from his sickness. For his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. And then verse thirty one. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that he had done that he had done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. So you get God's perspective on this whole deal, and what's going on when the envoys come in? You learn, the chronicler tells you, well, see, that is Hezekiah under his own wisdom, under the weight of his own wisdom. What makes sense to a man when the wisdom of God is taken away from him? Save my life at all costs. Remember, this is the same Hezekiah that was told, hey, This is going to end poorly for the nation because the people that you brought in, those Babylonians, are going to come haul your sons off into captivity. And do you remember his response? Well, at least there's going to be peace in my day. That's a man relying on his own wisdom. So the Chronicler tells you exactly what happened to Hezekiah was God just stepped out of the situation for just a second and... Hezekiah fell on his own sword, essentially. So it was pride that brought about uh, God's wrath. But, here's the mixed bag part of it. Hezekiah really messed up, right? However, he repented. So he he repented, but at the same time, just because you repent, just because you ask God for forgiveness, he's, he's... promises that he's faithful to forgive you, it doesn't mean that you're not going to bear some responsibility or consequences for your sin. And that's certainly true of Hezekiah. Even though God forgives him and accepts his repentance, he's still going to bear the weight of his choices. Look at, um, look at Isaiah 39, 5-7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So we know from Isaiah's own prophecy that it's going to be Babylon that we need to watch after. Not only that, we should expect that following here, the days of Judah are numbered, and they're going to go downhill, which is exactly what we see. And in fact, right after, uh, or they're going to be there's the word dragged into immorality and apostasy, and going to be ensnared by it. Hezekiah starts to tip his hand. Obviously, the he, he's again he's generally favorable because he comes back to repentance. It it seems that when he's corrected, he at least has some sort of sensitivity toward the Lord. At the same time, he steps on the rake a number of times, right? And so it's it, it kind of signals that Judah is falling into this decline of immorality and apostasy. And when do we see that? But it comes to a head, the decline of Judah is seen most clearly in Hezekiah's son, a man by the name of Manasseh. Now, if Hezekiah is generally favorable, but steps on the rake a number of times. Manasseh is the exact opposite. Generally seen as evil, although also comes to repentance. And so with Manasseh, we see just a very, a very strange story. He, his rule lasted for some 50 years, um, and what that means is he started taking his father's throne. He started sharing his father's throne while Hezekiah was still alive, in as early as 596, 10 years before Hezekiah died. Now, what that means is that Manasseh started co-reigning with his dad when he was 12 years old. Now, now think about why this might have been. Manasseh, remember, got sick and was near death and was told by the Lord, you're going to die, all right? What did I say? I said Manasseh, I meant Hezekiah. Hezekiah was told he was going to die. He was on his deathbed, told he was going to die, and that was somewhere around 702. So just a few years later, seven years later, he's healed. He comes out of it, and probably at this point, obviously it's a little bit of speculation, but probably at this point he realizes, I'm mortal. That tends to kind of sober you up, doesn't it? When you realize your own mortality, when you have these sort of hospital bed experiences, you realize, hey, my life is a vapor. So at some point, when Manasseh is about 12 years old, he starts co-reigning with dad and he becomes very, very evil. In fact, Manasseh is so evil that as soon as he takes over the throne from Hezekiah, he begins to install the high places again. He begins to install pagan worship. In fact, he goes so far as to engage in human sacrifice, offering his sons in the valley of Hinnom. Um, if you're looking at an aerial shot of, and I, I don't know why I didn't put a picture of this up there, I'm sorry. If you're looking at an aerial shot of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you can probably picture it if you think about it. That big dome of the rock is there now, but if you're looking at an aerial shot of the Temple um there's two valleys that run on either side of that temple. So on one side, which is on the eastern side, um, is the Kidron Valley, which is prominent in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus and his disciples will walk across the valley of Kidron, or the Kidron Valley, onto the Mount of Olives. And so they're staring across the Kidron Valley at the temple. Right? The other valley is the Valley of Hinnom, which runs on the kind of the southern and western side of the of the Temple Mount. And in this place is where he engaged in pagan sacrifices, he, uh, which his one of his great-grandfathers had also uh, engaged in pagan sacrifices there, but here Manasseh actually begins to sacrifice his own children. Look at 2 Kings uh, 21, 1-7. to Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His... Mother's name was uh, Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made made an Asherah, and as Ahab the king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Uh, of of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and refused and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger and carved an image of Asherah that he had made and set in the house which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So I, w- I want you to just look at that passage for just a second and kind of look at what's being told to you there. There's several things. First of all, um, he begins to do what was evil, it says in verse 2, in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Who was that? Who was it? Come on. You got it. You're good. Jump out there with a guess. Canaanites. So I couldn't think of the term. Ah, it's right down the to tip of my tongue. Uh, yeah, the Canaanites. Remember, um, the, the Lord tells Abraham all the way back in Genesis your people are going to come back here. Uh, and, and I'm going to wait for 400 years because. Why does he say the sins of the Amorites who are also in the land is not yet full? We look at the conquest of Israel when they go into the land of Israel and they drive out the Canaanites. It's very difficult to read through because there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of like difficulties that we have in reading the account of Joshua. But we have even here, what what was the nature of the sins that the Canaanites were involved in? These aren't innocent people. These are people sacrificing their children to gods. And so, this is the practice that this king, Manasseh, begins to partake in, is all kinds of worship of other gods, but not least of which is sacrificing his own son. So, then there's also the valley of Hinam where he takes his sons and offers sacrifices there to him. He partakes in fortune telling and all this. But what is the what is what is this culminating in? What's the greatest sin here? He takes an image and he puts it in where? The temple. And remember what he he said what God, he says here twice. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. What's the problem with him putting an image inside the sanctuary? God said, I will put my name there. So now how how do other nations and how do the people look at the temple of God? How do they look at God himself? The reason that this is a problem is because it's a poor reflection on God. That's the reason it's a problem. Yes. God's. He, James said, I, I will sh- share this place with No, none other. That's essentially what he's saying. Now all the nations and all the people of Israel are looking at this temple where I have put my name and they're associating that image with my name. And that's the problem. It defames the name of the Lord and that's why he has to be punished. All right. Um... All right, so he sacrifices his sons in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom should also be really important for us. We should, we should begin to think about this a lot because it comes up in the New Testament quite a bit. In fact, in all the Gospels. It's in Jesus' mouth a lot anytime he teaches on hell. So the, the Valley of Hinnom began to kind of develop after that. After, you, after a king sacrifices his son... In the valley, the land itself becomes not very valuable. It's not prime real estate any longer, and so they used it to burn trash and burn other things out there. Um, so you'll probably remember this. It's all over. I just picked one verse, uh, but Matthew 5:30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into Hell, right? In English, hell. In both Greek and in uh, Aramaic, which Jesus is speaking, that is Gehenna. The picture of hell is the valley of Hinnom. Why is that the valley of Hinnom? Why is that the picture of hell? Because that's where all the burning takes place. That's where the fires rage. That's where the king took his son and burned him in the fire. So when you get to Matthew chapter 23, and Matthew is, remember, uh, Jesus is giving all these woes to the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He gets to verse 15, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a... Son of hell, or child of hell, as yourselves, a child of Gehenna. Gehenna is, again, the valley of Hinnom where children were sacrificed. You make them a child of the fire, twice as much a child of the fire as you are. So Gehenna takes on this image. If you want to think about what hell is like, all right. if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it would be better for you to walk into heaven with one hand than to walk into the valley of Hinnom, which is hell, Gehenna, with all your hands fully in operation. You get it? So it takes on this sort of image of eternal destiny, where you're, you're sort of given over to the flames, as it were. All right, so Manasseh commits these grave atrocities, and he refuses to heed the warning from the prophets. And so what happens? But he is deported to Babylon. He's hauled up. Now, this is unprecedented, really, to some extent, because his sin is so grievous that he's just immediately taken care of. Uh, normally, the judgment of the Lord, you know, kind of takes a while, uh, and it, 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 he waits for it to become right. Not with this one. He's, held off, he's hauled off immediately. Look at Second Chronicles 33, 10-11. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So Babylon is sort of the gatekeepers, the prison, the prison guards for Assyria. And so Babylon and Assyria haul him off, uh, d- deport him, in chains, into uh, the land of Assyria, which, and, and into properly the place of Babylon. All right, now when Manasseh is there, this is where it gets really complicated, because what Manasseh did is evil, downright evil. None of us could ever imagine how you could possibly become that wicked, right? So, especially someone who would consider themselves a, you know, the Lord's people or whatever, But he sacrifices his So He gets hauled off into captivity, and there in captivity he starts to realize he has sort of the prison conversion, right? He's under the chains, and he's realizing, what have I done? And so he comes to repentance and faith, and it's probably at an early point in his his captivity that he comes to uh, faith. And here's what's interesting. What throne does... Does Manasseh occupy the throne of David? The Lord is favorable to David, remembers David. Now, Manasseh comes to repentance and faith, and I don't know if it's me that he sins against that grievously, and he comes to repentance in prison, I'm going, yeah, whatever. Isn't this often how we look at prison conversions? You found Jesus in prison, and we kind of, sometimes, maybe it's judgmental of us, it is, a little bit, but we kind of roll our eyes and go, yeah, I'm sure you found Jesus in prison. Well, here is Manasseh going to prison. God does not see that. God actually responds to him favorably and gives him his life back. It's at, look in Second Chronicles 33, 12-20. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Here's the man who sacrificed his own children and the Lord punished him and when he repented, Brought him back. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built um, an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gahan in the valley, and for the entrance of uh, and for the entrance into the fish gate. And carried around an offal and raised to a very great height. He also put a commander of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away all the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain and of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. All right, so pause right there for just a second. That's, uh, that's interesting. That's That's impressive. First of all, that the Lord is that faithful to forgive him in the midst of his repentance. And why is that? Because he's a son of David. That's why. Because he's faithful to his people, and he responds to their repentance. And what do we get in the New Testament but a very similar message, being children of the true and better David, Jesus, He says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. What does the Old Testament teach us but exactly that time and time again? Here are a people of Israel who stubbornly turn their hearts toward God. Here is a king who not only stubbornly turns his heart away from the Lord, but to the point of sacrificing his own son, gets thrown into prison yet comes to the Lord in repentance and how does the Lord respond to him? Not with indignation and and or righteous indignation. He had every right to destroy him if he wanted to. And yet he responds in faithfulness and brings him back, not only forgiving him, but restoring him to his position. As a result, obviously Manasseh uh, changes, but here's where it gets a little bit compli- complicated. Look in verse 17. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now look closely at verse 17. Do you see how that's written? How is that written? Is it a good thing? It's nevertheless, right? So look at what comes before it. Manasseh is doing all these great things. You're tracking along with what Manasseh's doing, and you're like, good. He seems to have repented. He gets rid of all the idols. He cleans up the temple. He cleans up the temple mount. He gets rid of all the things in the city. He throws them outside of the city. They're to be burned, in other words. And all that's good, and you're tracking with it, and you're going, okay, that's repentance. He got rid of all, the, all, all those you know, things. But nevertheless, even though he led the people in righteousness and told them they should worship only the, only the Lord their God, nevertheless, they went to the high place. Now, while they were there, they worshipped only the Lord. But it was still at the high places. Why is that a problem? Yeah. this is These high places are associated with another name. Um, So what does this tell us about worship? What do you think it tells us about worship? What's that? There's no compromise. Worship. God's particular about where and how. there's, There's this. So we don't go to a temple anymore. This is not house of God, as some people will call it, right? I struggle sometimes even to call this a sanctuary, right? Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside us. We are a temple of the Lord. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But, and, and even though that's happened, the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in us. Sometimes in, I think, a New Testament church age, we get this feeling that we can worship the Lord in whatever way we want to. Anything and everything can make it into the worship service. We can preach and teach however we want to. Things that go on in our worship services can be whatever they want. In fact, if I want to go out on a boat on Sunday and be me and Jesus and the fish, well, then I can worship that way too if I want to. And we tend to think that way because we have so-called freedom. But God's Word is filled from beginning to end with there is a right and wrong way to worship. And you would think if there was no... Well, the people are following the Lord. Their hearts seem to be turned to the Lord in faithfulness. Well, then what they're doing in these high places is good. Not quite. There is a way he is to be worshipped and a way he is not to be worshipped. And he's very clear about that. And I think if we kind of maybe drew a line from the Old to the New Testament and just sort of cut out the Old Testament altogether, we might be tempted to forget that lesson. But what we learn in the whole Bible is is that no, God has not changed. He is particular about how His people worship Him. They will come a certain way. Um, So, what is the result of the wholesale abandonment of righteousness? Is it the word of Yahweh through His prophets that Judah would suffer this same fate, that they would be dragged off uh, to Babylon? Um, What we saw happen in Samaria, where they're dragged off and they're taken into captivity in Assyria, it's going to happen in the south, except this time it's going to be Babylon. And we're told that by Isaiah. Hey, listen, those Babylonians are coming. They're going to get really strong. You're depending on them now. They're going to turn on you and every dime in this sanctuary is going with them. They're going to haul it all off and they're going to haul you off with them and your sons. Hezekiah's response is, well, at least there's going to be peace in my day, but there's going to be a day come when it's not so great. There's a gradual decline that's coming in Judah that we're going to watch happen over the next several kings, and it's going to happen quicker than you think it is. We're going to get get through 100 years like that on Wednesday night, and all of a sudden we have one notable exception to the kingdoms in in the south. That is the kingdom of, of Josiah. He's, there's going to be a major reform happen there, but it's not going to last very long. And before long, Babylon's going to begin a siege against the southern kingdom, and eventually it's going to fall, and he's going to take off everything um, there. Questions? Go ahead, Charlie. Um, is so the so his question is was the good stuff given more time in Chronicles than the bad stuff? Um, so the question was, is the real estate in Chronicles, is the more good stuff written in Chronicles than bad stuff because it's written toward the returning exiles um, to kind of give them a, a pattern for reform? Is that fair? A fair yeah, restatement I mean, of your question? Yeah. I mean, I haven't really thought about it from that perspective. Chronicles is normally written as a kind of like, I think viewed normally as like the priestly account of the things that are going on uh, in the land up until the exile of of Judah uh, to Babylon. And so um, whether it's written to the exiles returning and giving them a pattern for reform or not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I would answer that. Um, It's a good question, maybe a good thought. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Go ahead, Bob. Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. It, it is difficult, and and I think um, you do go to different cultures. The kind of the statement that Bob was making was like that. Where how do we draw the lines in worship? God is particular, and yet so many things have radically changed. And and how do we know where the lines are? Um, the thing that. Concerns me, like I, if I'm if I'm just looking, because it'd be hard to answer that question just on the whole. But let's just zoom into like music, let's say, um, when it comes to instrumentation and things like that. That that doesn't seem to be parameters that the Bible draws in worship. In fact, the Bible seems to be very open about the instruments that are are used, and says, you know, pra- praise him with the and fill in the blank for the instrument. Yeah is used quite frequently, especially in the Psalms, and um, I think the implication of that is, well, if you come up with another instrument, praise Him with that too, right? Like, it's not just an exhaustive list. And so I think instrumentation-wise, there's not, the the limit isn't there. Um, However, the emphasis on praise Him is. So the importance of the music, what that tells us is, the importance of the music is lyrical in that the direction of the song needs to be directed Godward and not necessarily usward. And I want you to just, as an experiment, just do a survey across the landscape of music that would be Christian. All <laughs> right? Just. I'll just put, you kind of know what music I'm talking about. Just do a survey across the landscape of the music and you will see that a lot of the lyrics are directed at how I feel now. And that is a significant problem. Maybe not so much a problem if you're driving down the road in your car and you're, you know, it's a song that comes on and perhaps it does edify to some degree to think about, what Christ the impact of Christ has done, that doesn't mean that it's used in a worship service. doesn't mean that it should be used in a worship service just because it mentions the name of Jesus or says the very vague you second-person pronoun that could be talking about God or perhaps your girlfriend. Who knows, right? Um, that doesn't mean that that song should be used in a worship service. What happens frequently is that the boundaries of worship change so slowly and so subtly that before long you're singing to your own emotions rather than the Lord, and you don't even realize you've done it, right? You don't even realize you made the switch. So I've always found it important, and when we've sat down to plan worship services here um, that you've, you've probably noticed, I'm sure you've noticed that the, the canon, so so to speak, of the music that we've used, some of it has made its way out, and new stuff has made its way in, things that what i'm hoping to do is all the songs that we sing are directed godward or if they are reflective of us it's here is who god is and this is what we are as a result of that so helping us to understand our sin and where we fall in the hierarchy let's just put it that way right um and so the the hope is really to reflect to take our attention and turn it toward the lord rather than than on ourselves And you'll hear some pushback for a lot of that. Uh, Maybe you won't. (laughs) You know, we'll take some, probably some flack a little bit for some of that. Because some favorite songs kind of make their way out. But what ends up happening is that the whole canon of what we sing is, I think, in a direction that the Lord has said, this is how worshipers should be. And so uh, that, that, that to me is an example and when you go to, whether you're sitting in a living room in China or here, the same rules should apply. Whether we're singing out loud with tons of instruments or they're whispering because because of the government or whatever, um, the, the same rules should govern both. It doesn't seem that the form of like, whether it's in a living room or, or a place like this, or whether there's an instrument or whether it's a cappella, it doesn't seem like that tends to matter really. At all, as much as it is, how is it directed? What's the vocabulary used? That's the important one. Hope that's all right. Let's pray, and then we we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time to come together and to really think about how how we worship, and, and we ask for forgiveness for perhaps those times where maybe as a as a broad body. We have directed our worship poorly, um, not perhaps directing it at you, but maybe even worshiping ourselves or our own emotions, uh, or or striving towards some sentimentality that you your word has not described or prescribed. So forgive us for that, or perhaps personally where we've come to worship individ- as individuals, desiring something that your word has not directed us to desire. Um, we ask for forgiveness for that. And we pray that as a body, as a church, our praise would be directed rightly. That we would understand that you are both wholly other and also near to us. And you have invited us to call you Father. So I pray that as a church, as a body of believers, as people that are called by your name, That we would place your name firmly in first place in our heart. That there would be no other contenders for our worship, for our affections, for our praise. That we as a church would be people that are called by the name of Christ to glorify your name. And boldly proclaim the good news of Christ to the world around us. And I pray that you would give us the boldness to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.